Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mask of the Phantasm, also known as The Death of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this, when exactly this is set in the DCAU is one of those vague things. For as much as I praise the DCAU for its interconnectivity, uh, the harsh reality is that there's not really a very concrete this happened here, this happened here kind of a thing. In fact, some people still disagree to this very day on exactly when certain shows or episodes happen in relation to other shows and episodes. I mean, this happens during the animated series, probably after season one, possibly before season two. It definitely happens before Batman Beyond, but Justice League kind of crosses a bit of a gamut. But at the same time, considering the beginning of Justice League, Justice League probably happens after Batman, the animated series season two, and point being... <clears throat> Trying to place this exactly is, well, uh, impossible, because we don't actually know when it happens. I usually think of this as happening in between the two season break, uh, the season break in between season one and season two of the Batman the Animated Series, personally. I do feel bad for the people who made this film, though, really. Because this was supposed to be direct to DVD, and everything that that implies. Now, it's a good film. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's a great film. I don't know if it's the best Batman film ever, but it's in the running. But you can kind of tell how it's like, okay, so we need to make this film, we're making it, we're putting it together, we've got the visuals and all this stuff, and all of a sudden someone's like, oh my god, this is amazing, You should, we need to put this in the screens! Th this was a horrible mistake, <laughs> just to put that as bluntly as I possibly can. Because, well, first of all, making something for the theaters versus making something for home video is a monstrously, monstrously different project. And they were completely unready for it. And they slaved away to try and do this under a massive time crunch, during which it didn't receive the kind of support and backing a film needs to be successful in the box office. Pro tip, there's only two ways to really be successful in the box office. Three, excuse me, three ways. Way number one, word of mouth. Everyone loves your film, it gets spread. Way two, it's something that's going to guarantee sales no matter what. A new Star Wars film, a new MCU film, you know. Way three proper advertising campaign. So, this didn't have the word-of-mouth thing going for it, at least not until it was too late. This also didn't have the big-name brand thing going for it, because this was kind of an unusual era for, for you know, Batman and superhero films in general, and they definitely marketed this as badly as they possibly could have. So, yeah, it was a flop. Financially, what I find amusing is basically everyone who saw it in the theaters loved it, including a friend of mine back in the day, too. I actually didn't see this one in the theater, sadly. That wasn't on purpose, it's just kind of what happened. <sighs> Thankfully, you know, now you can get a hold of this film elsewise, and hey, what do you know, it's actually a good film. Go figure. One of the things, though, I want to mention here, and I know I've talked about this before, but not all of you watched my mini-nations, so for those of you who haven't seen it, one of the things I like about the DCAU is how it brings the relative power level down of a lot of the characters to something a little more down-to-earth. Bats, for example, is... Well, there's several scenes in this film uh, where I can look at that and I have to actually mentally adjust my my uh, assumptions and presumptions about Batman to be like, oh yeah, this is this is the DCAU Batman, not, you know, many other versions of Batman who could effortlessly get through this. He hasn't thought 15 steps ahead. He doesn't have all of the tech and all the plans in place yet. This is still a Bats who's relatively new into his career. And, of course, it's the DCAU Batman, so there's that thing, too. Yeah. <clears throat> I do like that, though. 
but I'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we see the intro. This is probably a good time to mention that the animated series, which I will probably talk about someday, fingers crossed, was in many ways a direct reaction to Tim Burton's Batman. Now, I know that could, that's a long topic, and I don't want to get into that too much. The specific relevance for this film, and the animated series in general, is that Tim Burton's Batman basically re... Well, people will argue the specifics, but I would argue that Tim Burton's Batman and the massive juggernautal success of it was in part, if... Well, no, was the major contributing factor of why exactly Batman changed from being the way it used to be to the way it is now. Batman used to be camp. Whether it's good or bad, that's up to you. But Batman used to be camp. Then Tim Burton came along, and it's been serious ever since. Now, Frank Miller obviously gets some of the credit here as well. But the point being, that was kind of the, the, the apex point of the shift into the new type of Batman. And they very much wanted to try and approach the animated series with that idea in mind. But they didn't want to just make an animated version of that Batman. They wanted to make their own version, which was inspired by this new direction of Batman. So they're like, okay, we'll do this. And that, that's what led to the animated series, which was being made by people who worked on Tiny Toons Adventures. Now you might think, oh, wow, I'm amazed it was good. In which case, you never saw Tiny Toons Adventures. Actually, a lot of the Animaniac stuff in general was um, really good. That that era, that tiny little era of things. I know Animaniacs is not directly connected to Tiny Toon Adventures, but there was a lot of crossover of developers and creative staff. That's why I kind of mentioned that. I don't know what else to call that particular era of animation. Anyways, that led to this, which leads to the film. The film's overall style and approach is very clearly the more dark, gothic bats, but it never goes too far. In fact, it doesn't even approach the line. Of course it doesn't. It's primarily a G-slash-PG thing. This film in particular was PG, but the show is generally rated G, so they really can only do so much. But they managed to stretch the boundaries of that wonderfully. In the film, too, this is... Despite the fact that this is PG, this is not a film really... Um, this is not a kiddie film, let's put it that way. There's no intention to dumb this down to appeal to a younger audience. This is an animated film that is a serious work. And this was an era where that was kind of becoming a new thing when this film came out and when the animated series was coming out. And that was kind of a new paradigm. Nowadays, this is kind of normal, seeing an animated work that's serious. But remember, this is the 90s at this point. People are just kind of like, eh? So you can kind of see this as pushing that envelope, especially since, again, creatively, this film was received very well. So we see the intro, and we see bats, and we see the phantasm. What I like is it shows the different approach between the two uh, in contrast to each other, because both of them approach things from the same general vector. I'm going to try and scare the enemy into doing things that are stupid or foolish, and I'm going to you know, kind of count on my own skill and maneuverability and strength and cunning and knowledge, etc., in order to outmaneuver an enemy that has things like guns that I refuse to use. The difference, of course, is that Bats is constantly pushing himself as hard as he can to not kill his opponents, to not go too far, basically. Phantasm is specifically here as an assassin. And by all accounts would later end up working for Amanda Waller in the future. I always like to think that Phantasm actually did a lot of work in the future for Cadmus. We never see that. We only see the one incident. I just, it just makes sense to me. Anywho... <clears throat> 
So then we get back to... A lot of this film is actually set before the events of the film. And it basically serves as an origin story for the animated series, or rather, the DCAU's Batman. But before we go there, we see Bruce contemplating you know, things, and he's got two women on his shoulders and one woman who flings wine into his face. And he's just like, yeah, okay. There's even this bit where Arthur, the commissioner, actually says, man, I, th I swear you pick women specifically because they're not actually going to commit. <clears throat> As a quick aside, why would you want to wear Mary if you were someone like Bruce Wayne? I know that sounds like a strange question, but, I mean, why do you want the legal... If you are that wealthy, why do you want the legal entanglement of having to give away half of what you own to someone? I mean, if you want to be with someone forever because you love them, sure, that's great, but do you, do you really want to get legality involved when you're dealing with the billions range? Just, just food for thought, guys. It's not that hard. Anyways, <clears throat> this, of course, leads to the past. It is funny to me how Andrea, which I'm going to have trouble saying that because I know someone in real life named Andrea, and that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> it's funny to me how Andrea and Bruce bond over mutual tragedy. She is, of course, observant enough to see that he is still in pain and that he is still masking it, which is going to be an important part of her character. Part of the point is that she can match him, which is you know good and the kind of thing he would need. And, of course... We also see him doing his first little mission where he just goes after some random thugs in like a ski mask or whatever, and he sucks at it. He succeeds in the end, but he sucks at it, which makes perfect sense. This is obviously he is trained, he has uh, you know done his taekwondo and judo and whatever the heck else he wants to do. I believe he specifically mentioned jujitsu. He's done everything he can to prepare himself, and other than actually going out and getting experience, but when he does so. He really has no idea what he's doing, and it shows, and that's good. It's exactly what it should be. I also kind of like the the comparison. I'll get back to that in a second. Just don't let me forget, because you're totally here to remind me. There's this nice bit where she then approaches him and says, Why didn't you call me? And he's like, I, I didn't realize I was supposed to. Yeah, anybody with a functioning brain would call me back, because I'm gorgeous, dollface. But what I like about that is the unspoken implication that why would he possibly call her? Why would he call someone back in general? He's not looking. He's got a job to do. He's got the mission, the plan. He has. There's no room in there for a loved one. That's not how that works. So, of course, it didn't even occur to him until she basically throws herself at him, or throws him, actually. But, you know, he's into that sort of thing. The Bats family, you know how it is. So, we have a few scenes, you know, uh, the evil commissioner. Uh, Andrea figures out who Bruce is just by logical deduction. One of the things I, I remember one of my friends complaining about is that Andrea puts the pieces together a little too easily. I don't disagree, but I don't think it's a valid complaint, because Andrea happens to have very intimate and personal knowledge about Bruce Wayne, and then she happens to interact with Batman, coincidentally in a way, that immediately connects him to Bruce Wayne. So she figures out who he is like that. And she should. Smart, perceptive, and deep personal knowledge. See, we could put together a lot of things about Bats because we know Bats. We've been watching him all this time. We know him. Try to remember the perspective of the average individual who's probably only really seen the image that Bats has deliberately engendered. The, the, the face and facade that he portrays to everyone, not just the criminals. So, you can kind of see why 
it actually makes a degree of sense that she would be able to piece this together. There's this really great bit where he's going after the bikers. They're just robbing some dude. It doesn't matter. Just some dude. So he's like, I've got to do something. And she's like, no, what are you saying? Do you expect me to just stand here? So her response, telling, by the way, just make sure you come back in one piece. That's actually amusing to me because it helps to indicate how she already has a little bit of the vigilante, uh, vigilante, excuse me, tint in her mindset. But also she is mostly concerned about what she cares about and loves. No, no shame there, obviously. But my point being, as she states later, she was just terrified for him and for this whole situation. So he rushes in. And he's doing fine right up until he gets distracted by her. Now, that's not her fault. In fact, that is entirely his fault. The problem is, this. see, the thing is, she's not being distracting. She's just over there. But as he highlights himself later on, this is something he doesn't know he can live with. Having someone at home, some, having someone to come back to, having someone to worry about me, doesn't fit in the plan. He can't, in his own words, go full tilt. That's not how he says it. That's not his own words. Sorry. Um, <laughs> he, he can't do it if he knows someone is waiting for him. So he doesn't know what to do about that. <laughs> and so he's angry and he's hurt. He doesn't return the call because he doesn't know how to deal with this. And he's talking to, talking to his parents. And there's this great bit where he said, it just doesn't hurt as much anymore. I didn't count on being happy. Oh, that line. That line. How many of you have ever been at a point in your life where you never counted on being happy again? And so, he doesn't know how to process this. The film skips over a lot of their connection and relationship, which is necessary for the sake of the film. But it is a bit of a shame, especially since we only ever see Phantasm, uh, that is to say Andrea, spoiler alert, twice uh, ever in the DCAU here, and a brief mention in Epilogue. And that's it. <laughs> uh, in, I believe, Justice League Unlimited, I think is the specific show. I, all the shows blend for me, so I, forgive me if I'm saying the wrong one. So he has no idea how to process this. He, he he promised, but I don't know. I mean, this is wrong, and I thought I could go this way. And, of course, she, by this point, the implication is that they've been seeing each other for months, if not longer, and that they have grown, and that she knows him and he knows her. My point being that there's something closer to a real relationship there rather than you're cute, which is what fiction usually does. So she knows him well enough to, to find him there, especially after whatever Alfred told her. She probably just put down the phone and raced right to that graveyard, honestly. And uh, she's there for him. It's actually a really powerful and really touching scene. So, <clears throat> meanwhile, in the present, the head gangster, one of the larger mafia dons of the entire city, is basically crapping himself in terror at the idea that Batman's coming after him. The Batman is actually what he calls it. Now, I point that out because it's a nice showcasing of exactly what Bats has managed. Remember, when he started, the, those bike, the, those, those biker thugs barely noticed him. They're like, hey, it's some big rich boy. <laughs> or how about when he went after the guys who were robbing the warehouse? 
They just pulled weapons on him and were like, yeah, this is going to be fun. Nobody cared. Nobody even really noticed he existed. Now, the mere possibility, which is actually a lie of the fact that the Batman is coming after him, has one of the most terrifying people in the city terrified. And it has everyone on edge because they're like, oh my god, what do we do, what do we do? This helps to show how far he has come in the relatively short period of time since. I believe, based on timeline, and I looked this up, it's been roughly 14 years total since the Andrea incident and the now. I could actually be wrong about that. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that is actually wrong. Uh, it's nine years, isn't it? Ugh. I don't remember the exact timeline for when the season one stuff happens, but I, I usually think of it as 95. So, 86 was when the past stuff is happening. We do know that. That should give us a timestamp for that one. So it's been a little bit. It's been a few years. He's established himself. There's a very interesting scene. How does she do that thing with the smoke? Anyone else wonder that? They never explain that. She just kind of smoke. Then again, he pulls that kind of trick all the time, and I guess we just kind of accept it. Is that just a thing now? Does everyone have, like, magic teleporting towers? Anyways, whatever. Moving on. He chooses to be Bruce Wayne. He chooses her. That's interesting to me. And then she returns the ring and says, Nope, I'm out. Peace. No explanation. What I find most interesting is that she could have explained. She could have simply been like, My father's in trouble. I can't marry you. I'm sorry. That's all she had to say. Very quick. Very blunt. Instead, what happens is she leaves and basically implies that she just wasn't ready for marriage. And he doesn't talk to her again for nine years or 14 years or whatever it actually ends up being. And the very next scene is him putting on the cowl for the first time and Alfred being terrified at the sight of the Batman. Valestra, the big uh, gangster guy I mentioned earlier, goes to the Joker. This probably helps to show one of two things, or both. How desperate he is and how stupid he is. Now, this isn't the worst Joker we've ever seen. In fact, actually, it's probably the best Joker we've ever seen, because Mark Hamill's the Joker. But, what? He's the best Joker. But my point is, no, I, I mean, like, he's not the most horrifying or brutal. He's not the one who cut off his own face and then stitched it back on just so he could wear it as a mask. Like, Joker's done a lot of messed up stuff. But even this Joker is not someone you just kind of play around with. So... This guy going to him is <laughs> probably not the best idea. And, of course, the best part is he tries to buy him off, and then he tries to threaten him. So he dies. <laughs> probably in agony, based on how the laughing thing works. Speaking of which, did you notice they actually have, like, a cure for the laughing toxin? Or at least a way to endure it. At least if you only get a smaller dose. I'm pretty sure there is such a thing as a lethal dose of that, given what we see in the show. Just, I just think it's interesting that they actually showcase something like that, that they actually were working on some kind of way to deal with the toxin, the Joker toxin. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So this, of course, leads to Bats investigating Andrea directly. Now, what I find most interesting about this scene is the subtext is so overt, it's actually not sub. It's just text. She frowns, scowls, throws up a wall and says, this is all you being horrible. He shows up as Bats wearing the mask and cowl. This is interesting as well, though, because ultimately, as this movie goes to show, 
Only one of them was wearing a mask in that room. And it wasn't him. So, next scene is actually a very interesting scene. I mentioned earlier that in the DCAU, Bats is somewhat lower tier. At least until he gets a giant space station and all that fun stuff. And I point that out because here they have four precincts worth of cops go after him. This is interesting because it kind of shows how much Commissioner Gordon has been helping him indirectly for basically the entirety of the first season and in the future stuff as well. Because when the cops go after Bats full tilt, he barely escapes with his life. I'm not, I'm not even talking about like surviving with his identity or, or, or freedom intact. They almost kill him straight up. He is barely keeping ahead of them. And if Andrea had not circled, you know, gotten rid of the costume and circled around to get him, there's actually a decent chance he would have actually fallen right then and there. That would have been horrifying, wouldn't it? So, they reconnect, Andrea and Bruce, and they talk for a bit. Excuse me, Andrea and Bats. And uh, she relays the story about how the mobster apparently doesn't understand how fundamental economics work. I need the money right now. Uh, okay, well, if you give me a couple weeks, I'll go ahead and de-entangle the money from the investment firms that it's in. Most of that's in the European side of things. Uh, some of those banks aren't going to be able to move that money for a couple days, and that's going to be a few business days. So maybe two or three weeks. Now, that sounds like stalling, but it's not. That's just how finances work, especially at a higher level. The fact that the mobster was like, you got to do this now, it just shows how much of an idiot he is. But then again, he did try to buy and threaten the Joker. Anywho. So then... I want to give special praise really quick. Hart, Bo Hart Beckner is the one who plays the commissioner dude, Arthur. And he does, he's mostly just a sniveling worm, but he actually has one scene where he does some really good voice acting. He's under the toxins of the gas, so he's laughing, but obviously it's a very insincere laugh, but he's also desperate and terrified and serious and sincere while laughing. That is hard to do. So definite props to him for that scene. I just wanted to mention that really quick, because Bats is left with the same choice he had last time. And what I find very interesting is that for the second time, Bats chooses her and to be Bruce. Chooses to be happy. Chooses to have a, a life. This, of course, doesn't work because she doesn't choose that. She's already lost herself to vengeance and, well, that's the end of that, basically. She even says flat out, look what they did to us. Both of them. The big climactic finale, I actually have very little to say about. Um, although it's funny that she leaves with the Joker, and then we know the Joker is in later stuff. And she's in later stuff, so that's just weird. I don't know what to mention about that. But what I do know to mention is that that is the second time Bats has chosen to be Bruce Wayne and failed. I mention this because, in my opinion, this is the real, final death of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah, I know, it sounded like a joke, but I mean it sincerely now. This is the final chance Bruce Wayne had to have a life, and it's gone. From now on, well, the only mask he's going to wear is the one when he walks around without a cowl on. <sighs> and that is a damned shame. And this is a damned fine movie. I hope you guys enjoyed my thoughts on it.
I'll see you next time. Chukru.